the novel form, it has to be something that you're willing to live with for a very long time. Welcome to Book Me, sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. I'm Costas Alavrezos. Today, author Ian Colford. humans often find ourselves walking a shaky tightrope. On one side, there's self-awareness and honesty about the motives behind our actions. But on the other, there are rationalizations for bad choices and episodes of ignoring the consequences for ourselves or for others. If we lose our balance, we're in for a fall. The characters in Ian Colford's latest collection, A Dark House and Other Stories, draw us into situations which we might recognize but with deep insights into the eternal wrestling match between our better and worse angels. Ian Colford, welcome to Book Me. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. What tends to get you rolling on a short story, a character or a situation? I find that uh, my own practice is to imagine a situation. And I see somebody entering into a place where they have to make a decision and something is at stake. And it f usually turns out that if, if the situation engages me and I see some sort of moral resonance in it, then a, a character emerges. And if I'm lucky, other characters emerge that person can interact with. And the interplay among the characters is where the story comes from. In the first story, Stone Temple, uh, you had me sympathizing with Bobby, who's obviously uh, hurt and flawed, uh, but as you gradually reveal just how deeply flawed he is, I had to renegotiate my own feelings towards him. Were you setting a trap for me? Probably not intentionally, <laughs> because I probably fell into the same trap myself. I saw somebody who is a bit at sea in his own life. There are things he wants. He's caught in kind of a maelstrom of resentment. He feels he's been treated badly. And he approaches the situation in the only way he knows how. And it isn't until he's made a fatal decision that it hits him that this was never going to turn out well to start with. And we see him as a person who has never thought about the consequences of his impulsive actions. It's very possible, yes. What I'm trying to do is uh, show people a bit of themselves in a very flawed character and how it's useful to think ahead. A few times you tackle the point of view of a child, uh, trying to decipher what the heck the adults in their life are up to anyway. Uh, take Sarah in On the Beach. What do you want to show us by looking into the world through her eyes? Well, the main concern with Sarah is her mother's behavior, which sometimes she thinks she's understanding, uh, but other times just leaves her completely baffled. Uh, her mother is a conundrum to her in the sense that she looks to her for guidance and support, material and physical support, but it is never clear to Sarah what her mother is going to do, 
and she doesn't understand the reasons why her mother does the things she does. Such as falling under the sway of someone Sarah finds pretty questionable. Sarah finds this Rachel character kind of repulsive, but because her mother seems to like Rachel, she feels that it's incumbent on her to like Rachel as well, and she just can't make herself do it. And so she feels like she's failing in some sense. Family dynamics always give the the writer a pretty rich vein to mine. Uh, In The Comfort of Knowing, we have Warren, uh, the eldest of 10 siblings, who's working out his issues with the youngest, his sister Valerie, who's 17 years younger. With his brand of very self-righteous Christianity, could you read some of that story? I can do that. This is a portion of the story where Warren is describing his relationship with his youngest sibling, Valerie, and it's been a troubled relationship. I only mention this to illustrate the kind of relationship we have. Valerie and I seem to approach apparently cut-and-dried issues from opposing directions and to expose the flaws in each other's argument. One's point of greatest clarity is the other's blind spot. It's just as well we never shared living quarters, because each day would have seen new battle lines drawn and more blood on the floor. As it was, she grew up coddled and pampered, to the detriment of her character. She was permitted to do and say whatever she pleased. I suspect that by the time Valerie came along, my parents had grown weary of the rigors of child-rearing and were not as prepared as they might have been ten years earlier to clamp down on the wayward tendencies of an unruly child. The rest of us seemed to toe the line without being asked. But Valerie became the proverbial handful, by turns disrespectful and mischievous, beastly to her siblings, wasteful and willfully destructive. For instance, she cried to take piano lessons, and once the fees for the whole year were paid, she refused to go back. She wandered through the house as though it were a department store, helping herself to whatever she found, as if the very fact of its existence within arm's reach was proof enough that it belonged to her. Everyone learned to lock their things away and carry the key with them. She once carted off a small antique mantel clock that had belonged to her grandparents and tossed it into the bog all because my mother had run out of grape jelly and she had to eat unadorned peanut butter on white bread. Her adolescence was fraught with difficulties, and it's only by the grace of God that she didn't somehow kill herself and take a busload of other people with her. By the time she was 15, she was hooked on cigarettes and amphetamines and was staying out all night long more often than not. When she was 17, she left home for good, or so she claimed and my parents despaired that they had seen the last of her. Then one Christmas she turned up on the doorstep accompanied by her husband, a lanky young man with a European accent and the doting ways of the truly besotted. Under his tutelage she had cleaned herself up, finished her grade 12, and gained admittance to university. Tristan obviously had money, and it seemed it was this and not just my prayers that had turned things around. Her transformation from a sullen delinquent into a beautiful young woman full of hope and promise seemed to me ample evidence of God's hand at work. But when I mentioned this possibility to her during a private moment, with the holiday festivities in full swing, she laughed and said affectionately, Oh, Warren, you're so full of shit. 
Within the week, they had taken off, bound for Geneva to spend New Year's with his family. <laughs> now, you could tell there that, that Warren has these flashes of, of self-knowledge, but, you know, he and some other characters seem utterly unable to control the behaviors that get them and other people into trouble. Warren is driven by a sense of doing the right thing at any cost, and he has a high moral standard. But he also, his attitude is leavened by a kind of sense of absurdity of it all. I think he realizes from the start that he's never going to be able to control his youngest sister. But he's willing to try, and he goes to extremes, and luckily for him, sees the error of his ways. But he, even there, in, in the excerpt you read, I mean, he, he realizes that it wasn't necessarily his prayer that had turned things around. It was someone outside of himself with a different view of his sister. That's right. He realizes that prayer isn't going to do everything and that there are weaknesses, uh, flaws in his system of approaching life. Now, it's interesting. In, in short stories, you can uh, see very often uh, that there is this path that a character sets out on and there's inevitability that things are going to turn out badly. But, you know, you seem to, within the span of a short story, um, develop people who actually go through an evolution. I'm thinking of the professor in The Ugly Girl. Right. That character, again, I don't know where he came from. It was at a time when I was working on a university campus, so <laughs> I probably... You had lots around. <laughs> I had lots of material there. And uh, professor-student relationships was always fascinating to me because there's that dependency. And in this case, I think I turned it around by making the professor the one who is dependent on the strength of his student. And his life is falling apart around him, and he makes some poor decisions. But this student that, in a sense, he worships, just carries on with her life as if nothing is wrong. And he, in the end, I believe, draws strength from that, even though he's deeply flawed. And, and going through this period of extreme emotional need. That's right. He really puts her on a pedestal. Yes, and it's, it's her strength that gets him through this. I believe, even though she is oblivious to what's going on in his life. We also see an evolution, I think maybe even a leap, with McGowan, whose uh, prospects for happiness or growth seem to be uh, turning out their lights one by one in, in his life. Tell us about McGowan. McGowan is a character who has reached a point of his, in his life where everyone who is important to him has either died or moved away. His children, one is, one is dead, one is moved in, in a relationship. He's a widower. His, his business has, he's given up on it. He's sold out to the, the highest bidder. So he's sitting at home and he's watching TV and eating soup from a can, wondering what on earth he's gonna do with the time he has left. And it's this kind of despair that he could fall into that I think fascinated me. I, I didn't want him to be a total loser. 
but he does realize that he is on the edge of some some kind of abyss and if he allows himself to fall into it it could spell the end for him and this uh, this is a story it's it's a quite a long story and it's kind of a slice of life story and i i send him on a little mission at the story's close to to meet somebody who he knew earlier in his life whose again strength of character is uh, is seeing her through a difficult time and I want to believe that when the two of them link up, he is going to gain strength from her and be able to move on with his life in a productive way. You've also written novels. What tilts you towards exploring something in long form rather than as a short story? Now, that's a tough question because <laughs> at, uh, at the time of my life when I was writing these stories, I think I was looking for an idea to put into a novel. And I approached the short story with the notion that I wonder if this is a novel. And the idea itself, I think, tends to dictate the length and the treatment. I, I have written novels. My, my longest novel is uh, The Crimes of Hector Tomas, which uh, looks at uh, a family living through troubled times in a South American country. And the characters in that, that novel become so complex and their backstories become so complicated that the only possible treatment would have been the novel treatment. Whereas the other characters like Bobby Flint in the, uh, in the first story of this collection, Stone Temple, I could see that his, his moral dilemma was going to be solved in very few pages, a very tightly controlled story. So uh, the novel form it has to be something that you're willing to live with for a very long time. And as alluring as Bobby Flint was in that story, I couldn't see myself spending any more time with him. He, he just made too many mistakes. He was un unlikely to go through the kind of evolution we saw with some of the other characters, like the professor or McGowan. Yeah, he was not the self-realizing type of character, whereas the other characters... Uh, that uh, I've approached in my writing and in, in pieces that have ended up longer do, as you say, go through a whole um, <clears throat> period of uh, realizing that maybe they were on the wrong path and they have to right the ship before they can move along or they have to reconcile themselves to situations that they find themselves in. They have to make improvements. They have to um, apologize. They have to sort themselves out. And uh, so the novel, I feel, develops itself as you're writing about these characters and, um, and you see the paths that they're going down. And these paths can take them in any number of directions. Uh, whereas the short story, it's more focused and you see a clearer path right from the start. Ian Colford, thank you very much for coming in today. Pleased to be here. Ian Colford is the author of A Dark House and Other Stories. It's published by Vagrant Press. To catch any or all of the conversations I've had with people who create books in Atlantic Canada, go to bookmepodcast.ca. Whenever we have a new interview ready, we post an alert on the Book Me Podcast Instagram account. And share the link with friends, family, and book club pals, everyone you know who's a reader. We'd also love it if you could rate or review our podcast on your favorite download site. 
If you'd like to comment on a podcast like this one with Ian, our email address is info at bookmepodcast.ca. That's info at bookmepodcast.ca. Book Me is sponsored by Nimbus Publishing and Arts Nova Scotia. Thanks to the Halifax Central Library for the use of its studio. Our producer is Robin Grant. And Lynn Fox keeps our technical house brightly lit on every podcast. I'm Costas Halavrezos. Now, let's go read. Read.